in Matthew, and uh, Lord willing, and plotting out the rest of the year, Lord willing, I hope that we will be finishing the Gospel of Matthew near December uh, and finishing it off. That'll be three years we've spent uh, taking some time off here and there for the summers and for other smaller series uh, being in Matthew. But we started uh, back in uh, January of 2020, and so hopefully, Lord willing, ending at the end of this year, uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us. Uh, But Matthew chapter 18, we'll begin in verse 7. And if you would stand in honor of reading the reading of God's Word, we'll read Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 14 this morning. Matthew chapter 18 and beginning of verse 7. The Word of the Lord reads this, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. There's a jingle that you might be familiar with. The jingle asks a question. Some of you, as second I asked this question, which is a jingle, are unfortunately going to have the jingle stuck in your head for a while, and I apologize up front for that. The question is, what would you do for a Klondike bar? I'm really sorry. Would you cluck like a chicken? Would you sing out loud a silly song? What would you be willing to do for a chocolate-covered ice cream bar? I got to be honest, I wouldn't do much for one. I've had one before, and I wouldn't cluck like a chicken in public probably or do something uh, utterly embarrassing. The idea is finding out what you would be willing to do, what amount of humiliation or embarrassment you'd be willing to go through for a relatively short amount of temporal gain, a chocolate ice cream bar. Have you ever thought about it, though? In all seriousness, not just a Klondike bar, but something similar to it, what are you willing to endure for an ice cream bar, for something that may last for a few minutes before it's all gone and is nothing but a memory? What would you be willing to do, endure, for something that may be pleasurable, may be enjoyable, delicious for a few minutes? Now what would you be willing to do for something that lasts longer than a Klondike bar? Something of greater significance than ice cream? What would you be willing to do for something that lasts, let's say, for eternity? Jesus gets to the matter of eternal importance here in our text this morning. As he looks at things that last for eternity... going to great lengths not to sin, because sinning will lead you to eternal punishment and damnation. Jesus here, in speaking to his disciples, the little ones, says that we ought to, they ought to go to great lengths not to sin. And they also need to know that God will go to great lengths 
to rescue them if they do. Both are matters of life and death. The issue of sin and our need to repent and not to sin, not get lost in sin, and our redemption. The links to which God goes to secure us, to keep us, that we are not lost forever. Both are matters of great importance of life and death. This passage that we read this morning opens up with a repetition of woes. This word woe is one of warning against sin or warning against the coming judgment because of disobedience is often used in the Old Testament and here in Matthew and in Revelation and other parts of the Scripture as well to signal that great judgment is coming because of disobedience and a warning because of it. Woe to you. Woe to the world. This signals to us as we read that the conversation or what is to follow is one of great importance of warning, of the inevitability of judgment. Judgment comes because of sin, and what leads to sin is desire, temptation. So this morning, we'll look at three points. We'll look first at temptation to sin is inevitable, but it can be defeated. Temptation to sin is inevitable, but it can be defeated. He has here in verse 7, Jesus speaking, woe to the world for temptations to sin. It is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation does come. Temptations to sin are inevitable. They're all around you. The temptation to sin is even present and has been present already for you probably this morning. Temptations earlier and with your interacting with your family, getting ready to be here, I don't know about you, but as a child growing up, it was a lot of fighting in the car, and then we walked in the door with smiling faces. There was a lot of temptations to sin, isn't there? A lot of temptations to grumble and complain. The second Mark told me I put the wrong, we put the wrong date on the bulletin, there was a lot of temptation to grumble. Shame, guilt, self-doubt. Temptation to sin is inevitable, but it can be defeated. Adam and Eve were in the garden before there was even sin, and yet there was still temptation. Temptation is not equal to sin, but temptation can always lead to sin. But temptation can be overcome. Because Adam and Eve, though, gave in to temptation, now sin and its consequences have come upon every single human being who has ever lived. Just because temptation exists does not mean that sin is certain to happen or that when it does happen, that we have an excuse. You and I cannot say, well, if I wasn't tempted to sin, then I wouldn't have even considered doing that. No, you and I sin because we want to. We don't have to sin, even though the temptation may be present for us. The temptation is inevitable. But those of us who are believers have the Holy Spirit who lives in us and prompts us to not sin gives us the power to not yield to sin. Verse 7 recognizes the inevitability of seduction, one author writes, in a fallen world. But at the same time, it affirms the accountability of all offenders. You see, the text says, woe to the world for temptations. It is necessary temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Woe to the one who brings temptation upon others by means of your sin, by means of being tempted to it and falling prey to sin, to be tempted to others just as Adam and Eve were a source of temptation one for the other to sin. Even though it's inevitable, there's still accountability for those who do offend, for those who do sin. Temptation to sin is inevitable, but it can be overcome. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. So with temptation and the falling into it, Adam and Eve brought not only sin to all of us, but also death. 
While Adam and Eve were living in the garden before sin, there was temptation, but there wasn't death. There was temptation, but there wasn't sin or the curse. There wasn't disease. There wasn't sin, sickness, or death. There was God and walking with Him in the garden. But with sin, giving in to temptation brought all of a sudden death. Since the fall, all inherit a sinful nature now, making sin inevitable in our lives. But all people freely choose to go along with our own sinful nature. While temptation is inevitable, sin coming into our lives from the very, very beginning, being born into sin, by being born into Adam and Eve, following after them, as their progeny, then all of a sudden we come into sin and into death. We have inherited a sinful nature. There's a need for rescue. Temptation is inevitable. Sin is likely for those of us who live with a sin nature. James is helpful as he writes his letter. James in chapter 1 verse 13 begins as he writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You see the progression. The person is lured and enticed by a desire. The desire grows and conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin brings forth death. So because temptation is inevitable, because our desires are strong, there must be great work. We must go and be willing to go to great lengths to put our sin to death. So even though temptation is inevitable, it can be overcome. Joel Beakey, in writing uh, an article in Ligonier, says, Your aim must always be killing all sin so that sin does not kill you. The Spirit will help you. He helps you by making you alert to sin, by making you grieve over sin, by applying the sin-killing work of Christ at the cross to you, by fighting the good fight of faith, by enabling you to put the sword through sin. That's all the work of the Spirit within you. And you've got to give Him the credit for that. In our fight against sin, we have the Holy Spirit who resides within us as believers. We are not left to ourselves. Temptation is inevitable, but it can be overcome. It can be defeated. But number two, we must go to great lengths to kill sin in our life. You must go to great lengths. I must go to great lengths. Put in a lot of effort. God's power working through the Holy Spirit within us, putting in all this effort and work, intentionality. If sin and temptation is inevitable, then my effort must be intentional to put sin to death within my life. Several weeks ago, you were in Matthew 18, verse 6. I was gone, and Matt Cobb, who preached for me that morning, spoke on verse 6 and the verses that preceded it. And it says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's quite drastic, isn't it? One who tempts someone else to sin, one who brings another one to destruction, it would be better for them to have cement shoes and drown the depths of Davy Jones's locker, Right? In the depths of the sea, Jesus speaking with uh, great exaggeration for effect, but saying that one of these little ones, if you cause one of them to sin, it is of serious consequence. Sin is going to kill you. We see this as a matter of life and death. There's a parallel passage as seen in Mark chapter 9, parallel to the one we're in this morning, where there, Mark in his gospel moves directly from the warning that we saw in verse 6 that precedes our passage this morning about whoever causes one of these little ones to sin will be wearing those concrete shoes. 
as if it were to caution about sinning and it being better to enter life with one hand than be thrown into hell with both hands, similar to the text we read this morning. But Mark also gives a description, more description, about what awaits someone in hell. And I think he does so to add to the weight of, the gravity to, the situation regarding sin and our need to go to great lengths to kill any and all sin in our life. Mark chapter 9, in verse 48, he says, where the worm does not die. He's, Jesus has just mentioned, if it's better to go in to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. I don't remember ever reading that line. Everyone salted with fire. It doesn't probably feel good to have salt thrown at you, let alone to be salted with fire. The idea that this place is one of great torment and will never end. Unceasing anguish. That's why, one of the reasons why, someone ought to go to great lengths to kill sin. There are three reasons that Jesus gives in our text why we as God's people, as these little ones who believe, ought to go to great lengths to kill sin. Number one is killing sin is a matter of life and death. That's clear from the text as we wrote, uh, as we read it. Jesus is speaking of you can enter into life crippled or lame or go with two hands or two feet, be thrown into eternal fire. One brings life, one brings death. It's a matter of life and death. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It is a matter of life and death. It is not something we can control. It is not neutral. As though we can allow sin to be in our life and then control it and keep it in its place. It's not as though we can tell sin that we would like to commit just $10 worth of sin. I, I just want to commit $10 worth of sin as, as I do something and then be able to be done with it, put it back in its little closet or shoe box and keep it there for whenever we want to use it again and want to spend a little bit more currency there in that, that area of our sin. It's not like that. Sin doesn't stay neutral. It, it doesn't stay dormant whenever you're not using it. Sin grows. Sin is deceitful. Sin is sneaky. If you allow it to enter your life, it will destroy your life if it's not put to death. This is why you would again and again hear so many criminals or people say, I never meant it to go this far. I never thought I would end up in this place. I never thought I would do something like that. Husband and wife standing at the altar committing themselves to each other. Only years later, there's an adultery affair, adulterous affair. There's a life living completely separate, lies, all of this betrayal. I never thought we would have gotten here. How did we get to this place? All of those small steps, small sin that was never taken care of, never put to death, allowed to grow, fed, festering, that all of a sudden became so big. How did we get to this place? Brothers and sisters, sin does not creep up on us all of a sudden and overtake you. If sin all of a sudden seems overwhelming, you're caught in a web of lies and deceit. It started small and we have festered and fed it. Let us find its root and kill it or it will be killing you. Jesus here makes this so serious in the language that he gives because it's absolutely serious. It is not something that we want to be able to say, gee, why does that pastor in the Bible talk so much about sin? Can't we just talk about something uplifting and kind? When the text comes and brings it up, we have to expose it. We have to look at it. And we do so with great caution and with great warning for our own souls. Because Jesus here is speaking of believers. 
He's not speaking, and he makes this clear here and in other places, of non-believers. But of those who are believers, is it possible that that believer can be thrown into hell? Is it likely that that person was never a believer in the first place? Brothers and sisters, let us always, until the day we breathe our last, be putting sin to death with every breath that we have. Sin gives birth to lies that have to cover it up, which in turn gives birth to patterns of deception, habitual lying to get out of a web of lies. And ultimately, someone takes their life because they realize that there are so many lies that they can't get out of it and they're unwilling to face the truth. Jesus here is not speaking merely of one act one act that leads to damnation, one act that would lead someone to hell, but a lifestyle characterized by sinning, by causing others to sin, by leading others into temptation, by your open or blatant sin, by your unrepentant spirit, going to church and saying, I'm a believer, and yet openly doing these activities or thinking or actions that are sinful, not being called to account for it, not being asked to repent of it, and not willing to repent of it is an affront to the gospel and will lead someone else into sin themselves. Those are not compatible with true discipleship. Killing sin is a matter of life and death. That's why we go to great lengths to kill it, because it's serious. Also, failing to kill sin will get you thrown into hell forever. So it's a matter of life and death, but there's something that lasts longer than merely a temporary death. While it's serious to think of it's a matter of life and death, that that alone makes us take our vitamins and have certain surgeries and all of those things that we go, well, we don't want to die. We want to live, so I'm going to do these actions to prevent death. And yet there's all the more serious when we see here Jesus speaking of eternality, things that last forever. Failing to kill sin will get you thrown into hell forever. Not only is the destination horrible, as Mark records it, as we made mention of it, but also the manner by which one goes into hell is horrible. You notice that Jesus twice says, it would be better for you to enter into life crippled than to be thrown into hell. The text does not say you are gently placed into hell, calmly shown the door to your eternal destruction. No, but it states that you have your arm or foot removed is better than being thrown into hell. Throwing someone into something makes a definitive statement. When I was in college, a Bible college, mind you, I had a friend that betrayed us and went to another school, a rival school, in the same state, how dare he? Now, we were good friends. We actually, he and I grew up together, and we had a group of common friends there at college, and we probably should have been mature Christian men who didn't see this as a big deal, and most likely we were joking, but it wasn't a big deal. But when he came to school at the beginning of the year to grab his things, to go to the rival school, We decided to have a little fun at our trader friend's expense. So when he came up to gather his things, we were having lunch, and we picked him up from the lunch table, and a group of eight or ten of us or so surrounded him, carried him down to the lake that was at our school, and threw him in the water. That's a little bit different than saying, here, you're a trader, go get in the water, or encouraging him to be you deserve this. You should go in. We picked him up and we threw him in. We took out his phone and his wallet and his keys and all of those things. So there was some kindness there. But the reactions there at that lake could not have been more opposite. You can imagine the group of 10 or so guys in the crowd that gathered to see, to see this as we literally picked him up in the dining hall and carried him out kicking and screaming, and then down to the lake and all this stuff. The group of guys on the dock, though, were laughing. They were dry, and they were thrilled with themselves. The friend in the water, though, was soaking wet, 
pretty upset and probably embarrassed. The, the opposite reactions that are seen there. Be killing sin because if you do not, if you don't take sin seriously and do everything you can to kill it, it will eventually throw you into the pit of eternal destruction with laughter all the while your pain and guilt mix with the weeping and languishing you hear all around you. The picture cannot be one of more opposite contrasts. It is better for you to enter into life this way, temporarily maimed, without an arm, without an eye, without things that we see as vital to our everyday life, than to be thrown over here into destruction. So as not to be confused, the text, Jesus repeats it a second time. Once a person gets to the point of being sentenced to eternal damnation in hell, there's no ability for them ever to return to God or make repentance. There is a sense that formalities or niceties are lost. Jesus is making it clear that anything is better than being so lost in your sins that you would go to hell. You and I do not want to be thrown into hell for all of eternity. The idea implies a forcefulness, a lack of care, a rejection, thrown out with the garbage. In hell, there's eternal torment, suffering, and that is not the worst part. The worst part is eternal separation from God, from hope, from life, with no possibility of return. Jesus couldn't have started this text with better wording when he twice says, Woe to you. Take it seriously. Sin is one matter of life and death. That's why we give every effort we can to kill sin. Uh, we desire to kill sin because if we fail to kill it, it will, you will be thrown into hell forever. And we must do whatever it takes to kill sin. We give every effort to it because it is worth doing whatever it takes to kill sin. You notice how glibly almost, at least it seems like it in our reading, Jesus says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And you and I are sitting there gulping, like, are you kidding? Cut off your foot or your hand? But the idea is doing whatever it takes. In light of eternity and the coming judgment, it is far better to have died with only one arm than to go to hell with two. Would you be willing to cut off your arm if it were causing you to sin? Would you be willing to take Jesus at his word? And in no way, please hear me very clearly, we're not in any way encouraging this, but we are encouraging doing whatever it takes to kill sin, to mortify the flesh. What would you be willing to do to kill sin? I've struggled with this for so long. I've been a gossip all my life. I'm a grumbler at heart. I can't stop looking at these images. I can't quit my addiction to alcohol. I can't stop watching shows I should not be watching that always lead me to sinful thoughts and fantasies. What are you willing to do? Would you be willing to cut off your arm, cut off your foot, cut out your eye if it were causing you to sin? I'm guessing most of us would say no. No, I wouldn't be willing to do that. I would not be willing to cut off a limb, to cut out my eye. And most of us in our heart, I'm, I would guess, would say, I would want to. I really, really want to mortify my sin, put it to death. But we'll start by reading a book on how not to sin with our arm. We would get an app to try and remind us several times a day to not sin with our arm before we take the drastic measure of cutting it off. 
Is there anything else I can do? Can I put up sticky notes on the mirror in the bathroom? Can I do anything else instead of taking such a drastic measure? However, Jesus using hyperbole is getting a serious point across. He's making a matter of value judgment here. What do you value more? Do you value your body? He doesn't even say your life. You can cut off your arm and still live. Go with one eye and still live just fine. But a value statement. What is it that you intrinsically value more than the other, more than your eternal soul? Do you value an arm or an eye more than your eternal life? It would be hard to live without an arm, right? Of course. But it would be far better to live without an arm and save your soul. Am I willing to give up anything to not sin? Is there anything in my life, in my house, in my possession that I own, that I do, that I go to, that I work at, that I interact with? Is there anything that I would not give up? Is there anything that if I had to give it up, I'd make a whole lot of excuses and ultimately not give it up, that I would defend, get really angry about? I can't give up this. This isn't really causing me to sin. I can find a lot of ways to justify a lot of things. But would you be willing to give up, get rid of your TV if it were causing you to sin? Literally, just get rid of every TV in your home if they were causing you to sin. Would you be willing to give up Monday night guys' night if that was a major factor in sin habits within your life? relationships. If you knew a couple of friends of yours were incessant gossips, would you be willing to put up a strong boundary in that relationship so as to not be led into sin with them? Every time we get together, they're always gossiping, and, and I get pulled in with it. Is there a way that where you say, I can't get together with them anymore until something changes? Relationships changing because of sin. If your job was causing you to sin, there are things built into your job or, or things you're finding yourself doing, patterns of, of life, relationships that are inappropriate at work. Would you be willing to give that up? So many questions, right? Well, what would we do for income? How would we make it? I think Jesus would say it's better to enter into heaven jobless or with not as good of a job than to be thrown into hell making a whole lot more money. It's a value judgment. What's of greater importance for us? Do whatever you can, Christian, whatever it takes to kill sin in your life. It is not a matter of priorities or willpower or self-control. It's not a matter of habit or I just can't get rid of this. It is a matter of life and death. It is one of eternal importance. Do not presume upon the grace and kindness of the Lord. Thirdly, as we look at this passage, we saw the temptations are inevitable. We must do everything that we can to put sin to death, the serious nature of it. But also, thirdly, we see that Jesus goes to great lengths to rescue those who are lost. What an incredible balance to this text. When Jesus is giving this portion here of, are you willing to go to these lengths to kill sin? Jesus says, I'll go to this length to get you back. And we go to this, what's called the parable of the lost sheep. But before we get into this section too much, let's take just a brief second and address something that's sort of awkward. And I'm not sure if you caught it as we read through the passage, but did you notice that it goes maybe in your version? It doesn't mind. It goes from verse 10 to verse 12. You might have thought there was a typo. Like the people who did the ESV or the NIV skipped verse 11. They just made an error. Well, it's in all of them. So not likely a typo. In every ESV, they did the same thing. In every NIV, they did the same thing. King James Version, though, includes verse 11. If you're reading out of the New American Standard this morning, it might be in brackets. Verse 11, the New Living Translation does not include it either. What's 
What's going on? What's verse 11 say that can be controversial, right? Verse 11 says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That verse is also stated later in another gospel in Luke chapter 19. Verbatim, the exact same wording. So when the ESV just gets rid of verse 11 or the NIV gets rid of verse 11, it's not because the statement is something controversial and we all of a sudden are now dealing with versions and editors censoring the Bible. That's not what we're dealing with when all of a sudden we see a verse like that. Chances are likely your text maybe has a little footnote that says some manuscripts do not include verse 11. Uh, Some manuscripts or early manuscripts uh, do not include or contain this verse. Early MSS manuscripts do not contain this verse. They shouldn't be there. What the authors or the editors of your version are doing is actually being very upfront and honest with you. Instead of just glibbling over it and not putting it in there and just changing the numbering of the verses so as not to include it, they're letting you know. Some other versions include this verse, but we're not because the earliest manuscripts that we have don't have it. And so they're helping you out. The earliest, the most reliable manuscripts do not, they omit verse 11. It could have been added by someone later. And when you read it in light of our text, it doesn't add or take away anything to have it or to get rid of it. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That's a wonderful statement. We're grateful it's there. But the text goes on to explain exactly just that. We don't add anything to it by having that verse in there, and it's already included elsewhere in the Scriptures in Luke 19. So let's get back to the text. I just wanted to point that out because some of you might be reading and going, hey, what happened to verse 11? I was. Okay, back to it. So Jesus comes back to the phrase that we saw several weeks back, where he's talking about the little ones. And see, in verse 10, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. These are those, Jesus says, who believe in him. Those who come to him like children in faith, believing he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And most likely, the little ones there in the context are the disciples. Now, Jesus, earlier in Matthew 18, actually pulls a child to him and says, like one of these children, but the little ones are us. We're little ones. We believe. We have little faith that needs to grow, and we are, in a sense, just like the disciples following the Messiah, believing Him to be the Savior of the world. Jesus says not to look down or despise them, because they have angels who have regular access to the Father, to God Himself. Don't mess with these little ones, because they have backup Now, this is not a text to defend guardian angels, especially guardian angels in the way that we think of guardian angels, in the way that Hollywood has made us think of guardian angels. I grew up, and there was a television show my mother loved. I don't know what it was called, but it was about a guardian angel, and it was a woman, and it was weird. So this is not a text to say that the guardian angels that we think of, oh, whew, didn't get in that car accident, guardian angel. Thanks, buddy. Kept me alive. You know, where we're pumping our fist and point to our guardian angel. This is saying, if you notice, the text even says, For I'll tell you, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. If they are guardian angels like we've been told, then wouldn't it be that the angels are right there with you, protecting you from car accidents? But it says that the angels in heaven always have access, always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So their angels have access. Angels, plural. The angels are always watching over them. He does not say that they're always watching over them and protecting them from car accidents, but that their angels always see the face of their father. They have access. Don't despise these little ones. There are others who are before the face of their father who are for them. And he goes on real quickly, just transitions to verse 12 and begins with a question that speaks of Jesus going after a sheep that is lost. Now, Luke does something similar with this type of a story, but in Luke's gospel, Jesus uses the lost sheep to represent an unsaved person. Jesus going after the lost person and bringing them back. But in Matthew, 
he applies the parable to errant disciples, as the distinctive framework of the passage makes plain. The sheep gets lost, forcing the shepherd to make a difficult decision to leave the rest of the sheep, come find the lost one, and then when he does, he rejoices over it. More than those, more than rejoicing over those who never were lost. Jesus says, what do you think? If this story is true, if he finds it, he rejoices over it more than the other 99 that never went astray. Now, I am not a shepherd by any imagination, but I don't get it. I would have been rejoicing if one got lost that I still had 99 left. I'm not likely to wander off like outside the camp looking for one lost sheep. I'm going, thank the Lord, I still got 99. My boss might be upset, but he's not going to be that upset. You know, 99 out of 100, you're shooting an A plus almost. But when the shepherd goes out at great expense to his own self, most likely, wanders out to find this one little sheep that is lost, imagine the care that is given to one. Instead of just saying, well, most of the group is here, he still goes after the one with great intense care. And when he finds it, notice what the shepherd does not do. The shepherd does not chide the sheep, does not harm the sheep, does not say, you wicked little sheep, you're always wandering off. You, I wish you would wander off sometimes and find yourself you know, eaten or something. He doesn't do any of that. He rejoices over it and rejoices more so than the other 99 who never went away. It's dumbfounding to us that Jesus sees a wandering disciple. Here it says at the end of verse 14, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, remember the ones who believe, should perish. That Jesus would see one of us wandering off possibly because of what he's just mentioned, into some sinful thing, and he comes after us, and when he finds us and brings us back, that his language, his, his whole posture towards you is not one of, you're gonna get it when we get home, but one of rejoicing over you, more than over the 99 that never went astray. Jesus relentlessly pursues us, won't let us stray, but will come after us and rejoice over us. Why do we go to great lengths to kill sin? Well, because it's serious. It's of eternal importance. It's life and death. We must be willing to do whatever we can to kill it, obviously. But we do so also because Jesus has come all the way for us. Jesus goes to incredible links, the links of death itself, that he might redeem us, that he might rescue us, that he might cause us to be his forever. Not just offer redemption to us and then let us go on our merry way, but this shepherd here in Matthew 18 doesn't let his sheep out of his sight. He continues to pursue them even after they're his already. It reminds me of John 17 where Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. And he says in the beginning of verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I have guarded them. Why is it important that we fight with all that we have to kill sin? Because right now, as a believer, as a little one, Jesus is guarding you, that you would not be lost. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you. These things I speak to the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for your sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Why is it important 
that we do everything that we can to kill sin. All the reasons of a great importance of life and death that we've mentioned, because Jesus has gone to great lengths to death itself for us, but also because there is a world who is dying and who is being thrown into hell apart from the saving grace of Jesus coming and being made known to them. And would we be killing sin so that they might, too, see their need to put sin to death and trust in Christ alone for salvation? It is one of life and death, eternal importance for us and for our children and for our neighbors and for those that we work with. Your putting sin to death might be what God uses to open the eyes of the blind, You're putting sin to death by having to remove yourself from a relationship might be exactly what that other person needs to have their eyes open to now have a relationship with God himself. You're choosing to say, I can no longer do this or have this in my home might be exactly what somebody else needs who comes to your home and says, hey, where's the TV? We don't have one because I couldn't keep myself from sinning. And I would rather go to heaven and be with Christ than to watch the latest show on Netflix that is here today and gone tomorrow, and there'll be another one next week. And all of a sudden, what an impact might be had on a person who says, I didn't know what I was quite walking into when I asked the question. And an opportunity might arise for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, it is far bigger than us. But if we don't kill sin, it will indeed kill us. May we be faithful to put sin to death and trust in the work of God to bring about this work in us. It is not a work we do on our own, as we have mentioned. The Holy Spirit resides in us. The Father sanctifies us. Jesus guards us. He intercedes on our behalf. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1-6, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let us trust in the faithful working of Jesus Christ who is coming again. The one who guards us will keep us as his until he comes to receive us to himself. This morning, it is a great privilege to be able to remember the death of Christ until he comes again. The the grounds and the foundation of our faith we get to remember again this morning is a means of grace by which we put sin to death because we see the greater good, the good of the gospel that says, I was a wretched sinner, lost to my sins, dead to everything that is of God, rebellious to his cause, as Ephesians 2 says, wanting nothing to do with him in any way running in the complete opposite direction. But God, who was rich in mercy, loved me, poured grace upon me, opened my eyes to the gospel. And it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that is our only hope. And so in the midst of speaking of sin and our need to put it to death, there is hope. There is hope that we too, by God's grace and putting sin to death, know that there is a new life to come. Let us move to looking at, uh, actually this morning, we'll read out loud together, if we have it on the slide, something we haven't done before, but it was a practice that was done in the Reformation days, and is reading the Lord's Prayer together. If it doesn't come up on the screen, there it is. We'll read this together. I'll read a passage from 1 Corinthians 11. We'll take an opportunity to look at our own lives, look at our sin, confess sin, before our Father in heaven, be able to forgive others so that we might be able to take of the bread and of the cup in a worthy fashion, and then we'll come and we'll partake together. But let us read the Lord's Prayer together, and then I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus does not call us to do anything that he himself has not already done. Would you be willing to cut off your arm that you might enter into life? Jesus says, here is my body that is broken for you. Take, eat. Would you be willing to cut out your eye and enter into heaven or enter into the kingdom of God with only one eye? Jesus says, here is my blood that is poured out for you. Drink in remembrance of me. Let us proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, we'll have some music that is playing that you might be able to um, pray. Thank God for the gospel, that it's true, that he has come to die on the cross for our sins, and that if we put our faith and trust in him, he promises to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. To thank God for the truths of the gospel, to be able to confess sin, and to pray in any other way that you feel led to do so, according to the Lord's prayer, wherever God would lead you. And in a minute or two, come up and partake of the table, rejoicing mournfully of the death of Christ that was done, accomplished on your behalf, yours and mine, that we might, who ought to have died in our sins, can live forever because of Christ and his death and resurrection for us. You pray and then come and take.